Hello and welcome to the Emerging Excellence Podcast. Super excited to be here with Matt and Jess. They are the co-founders of Next Level Collaboration and Jess is their incredible CEO. Both of you have a passion for gaming, neurodiversity and a whole range of other things. I love that your backgrounds have been from other walks of life. So Matt, your education, Jess, you're a speechy or speech pathologist by training. And I love that you've been able to go from this discipline area to then launch into other avenues and then use those learnings to make it relevant for all kinds of people. So excited to talk to both of you today around all things gaming, neurodiversity and leadership. So welcome to the podcast, Matt and Jess. It's great to have you. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Felicity. So where there's so many places that we could start the discussion today. I want to talk first, though, about your passions. So gaming sounds like it's a bit of a passion for both of you. Why are you passionate about it and why gaming? Jess, I might start with you. Yeah, um, so for me growing up, I wasn't diagnosed as being autistic or having ADHD till I was an adult. But for me growing up, um, to be bluntly honest, I was absolutely rubbish at PE and most sports. Having undiagnosed ADHD, I found it really hard to kind of pay attention to movies or stuff that's cognitively demanding like that. And for me, games were this awesome sweet spot where I could, you know, engage with stories, with exploration, you know, narratives and all these wonderful things, but by doing it as well. Rather than sitting and watching a screen, I could essentially play the movie. And when I was in grade five, we got a PlayStation 2, which was quite possibly one of the greatest days of my life. Um, and for my sister and I, we were really different kids, but it was a bonding point for us that, you know, we both loved the same games and we worked out almost this tag team system of getting through these games together. We, one of us was better at some missions than the others. So we had this kind of rotating system where we practiced our teamwork skills, but also got to bond and enjoy you know, the time we were spending together doing something fun. And I think for me, gaming has just always been something I love. Even as an adult, I've just got a whole living room full of game consoles, you know, from everything, ones that are older, you know, than I am. But it's so exciting now to be incorporating this into my work. And for me, as a you know, neurodivergent kid, being able to use it to support other neurodivergent kids too. So awesome. And Matt, how about for you? A little bit similar to Jess. I associate gaming with my childhood and growing up. We weren't allowed to have Nintendo growing up and my cousins had it. And it was always, it was always a point of great excitement when we go visit our cousin's place because we knew that they had one of the original Nintendo Entertainment Systems in the late 80s, early 90s. But we did have a computer and we were a whole host of floppy disks. I'm really dating myself now. But it was floppy disks full of games. And we had a lot of like kids in our neighborhood who would come around and, and play. And through that, that's how we built a lot of our friendships, was through the idea of playing together. And that's really, as, as a teacher and I guess as a, as a researcher, that's really what got me interested in the idea of using games for social connection was my own childhood, was building those friendships and, and working out how we can work together through this game-mediated play. Also, yeah, I had similar experience growing up. My cousins had all of the everything, the PlayStation, the Nintendo, and, of course, they'd been practising for hours and hours, and then we'd come over on the weekend. And I I was like, I can't, I'm not even going to bother. You're just too advanced for me. And it was interesting because my family was similar. We didn't have 
gaming consoles growing up. We weren't allowed them. And we, but I did love a bit of Age of Empires on the computer. So I did yes. sneak some gaming in early on and massive fan of Tetris. So I don't know if that helped me become an engineer, but I think that critical thinking and problem solving, certainly for Age of Empires, absolutely helped somewhere along the way. My favourite thing in Age of Empires, I'm sure listeners of a certain age will remember this as well, the elephants. I used to love the elephants in Age of Empires. That was the most exciting part. I was a massive ancient history fan, so I did like that theme of the history and adding that in. Anyway, I'll I'll, I'll stop myself there because, Matt, I'm sure we could nerd out about Age of Empires for the rest of this session today. Very easy. So a lot of people who listen to this podcast are leaders and some of the challenges that they're facing, attracting people within their organisation, evaluating people's skills and making sure they're hiring people for the right roles and testing and evaluating people to see if they're going into the right opportunity and, and really providing that opportunity for practice. But we don't often have that in our workplaces. Often it's, you know, you're meeting with a hiring manager, you're sitting down and having an interview, and there's not those opportunities for that practice. And I'd love to hear from each of you around what you've seen with the work you've done in how we could use gaming as that kind of testing and play environment for people and what's worked for you. So big question, whoever wants to take it, jump in. I think our CEO would have a lot to be able to say on this. I think um, in the context of the kids that we work with, gaming is something that, to be honest, they're really, really good at. You know, a lot of these kids might not have the best time in PE or art class, but they come in and they have this encyclopedic knowledge of their favourite games. You know, it's an area of passion, it's an area of strength, and it's an area of interest. So for them, you know, it's motivating, it's engaging. And when we're focusing on teaching them these skills, we're building off something that they're already really strong and confident at. I know that I would absolutely flounder if I was trying to learn skills through basketball. But if you put me in front of Age of Empires, I would be like springboarding off with a much better start. I think in terms of staff as well, I guess for our social mission at Next Level Collaboration, we actively recruit and hire young adults with lived experiences of neurodivergence. Um, We know that there's been a bit of a gap in employment practices historically. So that's something that we try and address through our work. And we... um, really look at what our employees' strengths are as well. So, you know, we have worked with staff who are, might be dyslexic or have other, you know, literacy differences, but they're really, really strong in visual arts and, you know, create just these fantastic graphics and interactive activities. So when we're hiring and recruiting people, we really look at, you know, what are their areas of strength and how can we promote those and lift them up? Um, I think whether you're a kid or an adult, you know, everyone is really good at some things and not as good at others. That's very normal. So what we focus on is really lifting up those areas of strength and celebrating what people are good at. I think just adding to what Jess was saying that's really exciting is the way we see games as part of our company culture and that idea of, of purposeful play. So the idea of running training through games, and I had a really interesting conversation with uh, an HR director from Microsoft in the US about this, that they are now using Minecraft to do their interviews, for example. And that's a way for them to evaluate the collaborative problem-solving skills of their staff. And we've, the reason we're speaking about this is because we'll talk about some of the things we're doing with local multiplayer. We have people with one screen, multiple controls in a room, and getting our staff to practice effectively communicating with each other and using games as that vehicle through which we can see what are our areas of strength collectively as a workforce, but also what, how can we better improve our channels of communication? I have to say working with mainly 
autistic or neurodivergent staff has really improved my own understanding of communication. Jess and I play this game. It's like, so let's, let's not play guess what's in my head. Let me be really explicit and clear. And I guess through playing together, I've actually developed my communication skills in a way that responds to the communication preferences of the rest of the team who are mostly neurodivergent. So I've actually, I've seen the benefit firsthand by working with diverse staff and using games at that point of mediation. I've actually become a much better communicator in my role as the chief research officer. It's actually made it really highlight for me the importance of my own communication and checking for understanding, which is not something we typically talk about, about people who are neurotypical needing to develop skills and, and needing to improve their communication to better work better with the autistic community. Otherwise, we used to put the emphasis on the other way around. So there's been some really valuable learnings. I've seen this trend happening right across, particularly the tech sector. That's so interesting. And I'm I'm an extrovert, if you haven't guessed already, and I'm a terrible extrovert and that I just assume everyone's an extrovert. And I have to remind myself, no, there are amazing introverts. And as a leader, I think it's my job to draw the best out in people. And I love that phrase you use, check for understanding, because you're right. It's, you know, we don't often say back what, you know, what did you take from my conversation or what does this mean to you or really stop to think we're often communicating with our own preferences first. And it's fascinating. We have an almost three-year-old and when I communicate to him, it's so interesting how he often interprets things, which is not what I meant, but it still answers the question that I asked him or the instruction that I gave him. So very powerful tool. And is that something that you find you use a lot in gaming? Is that checking for understanding to see how people are kind of, I guess, interpreting the world? I'll let Jess, do you want to answer this one? No, absolutely. And it's one of the um, skills we focus on working with the kids too. So sometimes you'll see that one of them might say, oh, can you go over there and get that item? But like you mentioned, you know, if there's three items on the screen, that's very open to interpretation. So it's working on those collaborative problem solving skills and skills for teamwork as well. And these are skills for life. You know, you won't just use them in school. You use them, like Matt said, when you're an adult in the workplace. And it just, to be bluntly honest, it makes everything so much easier for everyone when we all know that we're on the same page. And like you said, you know, there's, there's no guessing games. Yeah, I love this idea of designing for difference and someone, you know, someone who's passionate about diversity. There's so many fascinating stories where you look at examples like the typewriter. I'm not sure if you guys know this, but the typewriter was invented by this Italian guy who wanted to communicate more quickly with his lover who was blind. And he invented the QWERTY keyboard, which we all now use. And so I find that so fascinating how we can design for one person, but then it's relevant to so many and to people who might not um, be neurodiverse. It's actually going to help a lot of other people. Have you seen any examples of that where you've designed something that's actually benefited a broader amount of people that maybe was a bit unexpected? You're both nodding. <laughs> I absolutely have. Can I talk about our meeting structure and the way that we chair our meetings, Jess? Because it's been a revelation for me as someone oh, yeah, who's absolutely. Yeah, no, it's I'm great. not autistic, but a lot of our staff are and a lot of our team, including our CEO who chairs our meetings. And I just for all the CEOs listening, but for people who may be chairing meetings in the future, having a really, really clear agenda. I know it sounds really simple, but I my my other role is at the University of Melbourne and we we have so many meetings, like so many other people. And the purpose of the meeting is not clear, but the agenda as well, there's a lot of guesswork. I didn't see that before I started working at Next Level. 
but making it really clear about and explicit about the purpose of each item on the agenda, how long it's going to take, and having the top priority items. I know this is good governance in general, but having that actually put into action and having Jess chair our meetings, I wish we could clone Jess and have her chair so many of the other meetings I attend because we sit there going around in circles about trying to figure out what even is the agenda um, and saying this, this having that, I guess that, I guess the autistic advantage is what they're calling it now, that really clear, precise, precision use of language really does help in making sure that the entire board or whatever group you're chairing is fully on board with understanding what's expected, how long does it take and what are the outcomes we need from this meeting. Um, so that's been a real revelation for me. Amazing. That's so helpful. I'm definitely stealing that one. And we have talked a lot about neurodiversity and mentioned the word. And again, someone who's passionate about diversity, I often, you know, gender, I feel like is such an easy one. You can generally tell men and women in the room or people who don't identify as that or something else. And they're pretty easy stats to get. So I feel like often, particularly from engineering perspective, where my background is, you're drawn to those stats. But the neurodiversity often seems like, oh, that's just a new item we've added to the list. And people aren't really thinking deeply about it from something simple like a meeting, which is something that we're going to be doing, you know, pretty much every single day of our work. So uh, for those listeners who might not be aware of what neurodiversity means, I'd love just to hear an explanation from each of you what that what that is for you. So I guess, you know, from a theoretical perspective, neurodiversity was a term created by Judy Singer. She was an Australian sociologist, and it kind of refers to this concept that the variation and differences between brains are part of normal human variation. Thinking of, um, you know, like the word biodiversity was a whole lot of different life forms. It's a similar principle, but for human brains. So I guess under that framework, um, neurodiversity considers things like autism, ADHD, um, you know, dyslexia, anxiety, mental health conditions as part of the variation between human brains because everyone's different. Um, you know, we're all different physically, height-wise. You know, some of us have better vision than others and brains are no different. So I guess in terms of the terminology as well, somebody whose brain, I guess, falls what is in what would be considered the typical noughts of a human brain would be neurotypical. And then somebody whose brain falls outside those norms would be considered neurodivergent. So neurodivergent usually covers things like yeah, autism, ADHD, you know, a lot of mental health conditions, dyslexia, um, dyscalculia. I hope that kind of clarifies it. Um, there's some really good resources on autistic-led advocacy pages. So um, Yellow Ladybugs, Reframing Autism have some good explanations as well. But it's a nice way of, I guess, looking at everyone in terms of individual differences rather than a defect or a disorder because there's nothing really wrong with anyone. That's, you know, it's not true. Awesome. That's a great explanation. And I, I, we were talking earlier and you talked about the spectrum or there's a range. And so if I can add your amazing wheel diagram that you sent me into the notes for this podcast, because I think that's important. No, you said when you met one autistic person, you one autistic person and everyone has so many differences that you can see and also not see. Matt, would you add anything to that or what's your perspective on it? Just, I guess there's two things to sort of complement what Jess has said is this first thing is this idea has really emerged about the double empathy problem. And this is by someone called Milton in 2012, first coined this term. And it's the idea that we've typically seen conditions like autism or ADHD as being things to fix. 
but rather it's this analogy of the idea that sometimes people who are neurodivergent will have differences in how they understand things like social situations or social norms, but it's comparing it more to a language or cultural difference. So for example, if you speak German and I speak French, there's nothing wrong with German or French. And, and it's very, if most people in a, in a country speak French, it's good. It's a good thing to be able to speak French that, so that you can communicate and easily navigate those language norms. But vice versa, it's also, it's really helpful for workplaces to be able to speak a bit of German as well, if you've got German employees, even if they're a minority. So it's this idea of culture, changing autism from a diagnosis or ADHD from a diagnostic label to really thinking about what are the cultural implications of that? So what does that actually shift look like and mean from deficits to differences? And what things can we change in our environment to make it more neuroinclusive? So you have different neurotypes or different ways of seeing the world. Because we know just from all the work around diversity and inclusion in general, it is a competitive advantage. Absolutely. There is a joke and just uh, I'll let you I'll let you tell it because it's, it's very tongue in cheek. Uh, would you like to share how I'm referred to amongst our team? Matt is our you know, white man between the ages of 30 and 50 is considered a diversity hire. <laughs> That's great. How do you feel about that, Matt? Well, they're very understanding. And so typical blank joke that goes around about me is that I say, oh, poor Matt, his neurotypical brain. We'll have to make sure that we're, you know, give him some time for some small talk or let him, you know, use his neurotypical social norms, make sure that you're very sensitive around that. You know, his, you know, social skills differences. But sort of the idea that we all have all these intersecting differences and we all have a range, you know, Australia being a multicultural society, we have a range of different cultural norms. And maybe thinking about neurodiversity is another layer to that intersection between things like gender and ethnicity and, and race and, and culture and um, having that sort of added layer there. I know most of our team also identifies female, which is really it's an interesting space because, and, and Jess is obviously the, much more of an expert in space than I am, but there are, you know, there's that layer of gender and neurodiversity coming together and the implications for that around opportunities for promotion and opportunities for leadership in an organization. I might throw it at Jess because she'll be much, <laughs> has a much more lived experience of that than I do. Feel my lived experience of um being a woman. <laughs> yeah. But no, look, and I think um, you know, in terms of the gender lens as well, is a lot of the original research around, you know, neurodivergence diagnoses like autism and ADHD was traditionally done on young boys. So there's now kind of this wave of women coming out, especially, you know, mums who've had kids who've um been diagnosed. But a lot of women are now being diagnosed later in life. I didn't get a diagnosis of autism um until I was 19 and ADHD at 23 which is, you know, hilariously, I actually got sent for an assessment to the school psychologist in grade four, and I got returned to the classroom with a diagnosis of being oh, very gifted, but just a little bit quirky, which was not right, but it was also, you know, not wrong. And then when I got diagnosed, we took that to a school, not to a school psychologist, like a regular one, and he looked at it and we're like, this is a textbook presentation of a nine-year-old autistic girl. But back then, you know, the kids I knew that were autistic or had a diagnosis were like quite a stereotyped presentation. We know now that autism is rarely Rain Man, 
that's a very, very, very rare case. And it really, like you said, it's this whole range of differences and it presents quite differently in women. So there's now, yeah, this really whole way of coming out. And you can see as well, getting that diagnosis, you know, it changes the way you see things in things like workplace and things like leadership, where you do really start to understand yourself a lot better as well. Yeah, absolutely. Two really good girlfriends who've both been diagnosed with ADHD later in life. One was in her mid-30s, one's in her 40s and only recent. And it's been so interesting watching their journey and their processing it and looking for different support groups that have really helped them. But then they also feel have said to me they feel really relieved because they feel like things make so much more sense now. And it's been really helpful for them and and just even learning different techniques. So that's been cool for me to hear too, because I go, oh, I'm going to steal that. That's a really great way of working. Or that's such a great tip. I'd never thought about doing it that way. And I think even just generally in school, like I remember my maths classes, it was like, this is how you do maths. And there's only one way to do it. And then I got to uni and I saw other people doing maths in different ways. And I was shocked going, wow, there's other ways to process maths. And that actually is better for how my brain thinks. But I just thought there was only this one way to do things. So I think it's such a positive that we're seeing these different approaches. And I think it's quite interesting thinking about the workplace too, because ultimately that's our current community. That's where we go to for a lot of our connection. And so it's super important for leaders to be able to be aware of those differences as well. And that's something I think you've both seen in in the gaming side too, is that it enables that connection between people working remotely. It's a really interesting space we're in now, this hybrid workplace. Have you seen that I guess this mix of, yeah, I love that it's such a cool blend, neurodiversity and gaming. I never would have thought I'd be speaking about those two things together, but it just makes sense. Yeah, Have you seen it being a benefit for these new workplaces we're finding ourselves in? Absolutely. For me, working from home was just an enormous game changer. I think, you know, when employers and that sort of look at the concept of an office, from a neurodivergent perspective, a lot of offices honestly designed to be one of the least neurodivergent inclusive places ever. If you look at the sensory environment, things like, you know, fluorescent lighting is really intense. Background noise from things like coffee machines, you know, automatic doors, people moving around, open plan offices can feel quite overwhelming too. So for me, working from home kind of gave me this autonomy and control over my environment to set things up in the way that works best for me. And, you know, when you're neurodivergent, your needs can change day to day as well. There are some days where I'm fine with a bit of extra light and there's some days where I kind of want to, you know, a darker, quieter space. But being able to work from home gives me that flexibility to structure my day and my environment and everything that I'm doing around what I need. And, you know, to be honest, it helps me do my job the best that I can because, you know, I can set myself up for success rather than trying to manage in an environment that I, you know, sometimes really struggle to deal with. I think what's really interesting is, and talking about that intersection between creating neurodivergent friendly workplaces and thinking about gaming as well is a social dimensions of the workplace. Because as we've moved to this hybrid model, there is a lot of concern, even at the University of Melbourne where I work, around we've got way more staff working in remote parts of the country or around the world, which is fantastic from being able to attract global talent to come and work in research because we can do these things remotely now. But what about the social cohesion of a team or the th- a sense of common identity and shared identity? And so I've seen online gaming used as a really cool space. I had the chance to go visit the University of California, Santa Cruz there. I'm one of their research labs. 
And using Discord, which is a gaming chat program, as their primary way of staying connected as a, as a research team, but also using gaming as a way of having social activities where people actually have a really clear purpose. The old um, sort of cocktail nights, I personally enjoy. I'm like you, Felicity, I'm an extrovert. So I actually really enjoy that. Uh, Jess, Jess and I have like a sort of a secret hand signal for when it's time for her to finish up at a cocktail night because I know she does not love them like I do when there's people you don't know. But gaming can be a really safe way. People can join in and they've got a common thing to talk about and play through a level or vibratively problem solve to relax, to get to know each other. But they can do it in a way. They can do it from home. They can do it in person. They can bring in a laptop and do it at work. But it gives a common, I guess, like the activity when you go somewhere together to, as a team, do team building. It's a really good way of doing that because it's, it allows people to sort of have something to A, speak about. Something that's often strength-based for a lot of people who are neurodivergent. And it gives them something to talk about. If you are a blended team and you want people to come in some days, the office, having something to speak about. I know growing up in country Victoria, it was often Australian rules football was the water cooler chat. I'm sure, I think you are, you're in Queensland, aren't you? Yes, I am. But I did live in Victoria, so I had to adopt a team for four years while I lived in Melbourne for a bit. Yep. And same for me going north of the border, I have to uh, learn about rugby league. It seemed to be a thing I had to, uh, to figure out. But rather than than trying to to find these things, having co-op gaming sessions can be a really great way to give someone, to make someone, give people a sense, neurodivergent, neurotypical, doesn't matter, that they have some connection, something to talk about with the rest of the team and builds that comfort, builds that trust and can really help to to get people communicating more effectively because they're working together solving a problem in a in a fun sort of way and then be able to translate that to resolving a business problem how you're running your crm or how you're doing something like that how can you workshop a solution there is an existing relationship from which to build and i think one thing we're really big on with what we do we aspire is creating a safe space and i can hear in your speaking matt that there's that opportunity there for that safe space particularly if it's a game that people might not have played before everyone's kind of coming in at that different entry points, different strengths, different perspectives, but it can create that opportunity for a safe space. Are you finding that's there as well? Yeah, absolutely. I know just um, for our for our staff nights, we'll go somewhere there's games to play. And that's because we, you know, most of the staff love gaming, but also it's a, it's, it's a quite a structured sort of social activity in the sense that people kind of know what's expected and people can, if they need a break, they can take a break. People, if we're playing online, people, can join remotely there's a lot of flexibility in how people can choose to participate I think yeah you're absolutely right Matt and the beauty of online settings and games is that is that flexibility to choose how you engage in a way that works best for you um even you know for the kids and the adults that we work with in an online game you have the option of voice chat text chat you know you can have a zoom running at the same time and have video if you want but it gives people that flexibility to choose how they want to engage in a way that works best for them I know, you know, I don't mind a cocktail night, but I find in a lot of those settings, you know, the sensory environment can be really difficult. And for me, you know, auditory information, neurotypical people, I think, can filter it out. But for me, everything is the one volume at once. So if I'm in a room with, for example, you know, 50 other people, there's a lot of background conversation, um, you know, the noise of drinks being made at the bar, you know, maybe traffic going past. It can be really, really hard to filter out the voice of the person next to me. 
because it's kind of just everything all at once. So being in an online setting, you know, it does give me the flexibility to, you know, isolate a sound if I need to use headphones and for other people as well, you know, it gives you that autonomy to participate in a way that works best for you because what works best for everyone is different. And, you know, if, if people have got the flexibility, they can choose. That's so true. And it was interesting going from, I was doing some university teaching myself before COVID and then going into that online environment. And we also had a lot of overseas students and they were so active on the chat. I was really surprised. And we found it felt like we got more engagement going online in those first, I mean, I feel like people got over it after a while, but it was so interesting. And then even going back into the classroom and teaching first year engineering, then it was like a struggle to get thing information out of people. And I always want to go back online because I actually get that engagement in that chat. And I think people did feel a lot more comfortable uh, sharing things and even jokes as well in the chat and all the emojis that you can use and all of that kind of stuff as well. So really interesting. Uh, also, I love a cocktail party, but I do also would love some other options that are non-drinking options as well. So I love that you've provided some great suggestions for people. Let's talk about the future now. So next level collaboration, throwing in the deep end, Jess, you're the CEO. What is next for you? What are you looking forward to in the future? What do you hope to see happening? What are you What are you working on as a team? At the moment, we're working on a teacher training program, which we're really excited to pilot this year. So this program is to train teachers to run our program sessions in their schools. We know that there are a lot of kids who need support and might not be able to access it. For example, um, you know, kids who might not have a formal diagnosis or haven't been able to access NDIS funding. So this will be a way for them to access sessions like ours in their school setting and hopefully, you know, equip teachers as well with strategies to better support inclusive education and, you know, any neurodivergent students they might be working with. We're really, really excited. I think, you know, Matt and I, when we started Next Level Collaboration, we sort of said, oh, you know, we, we just want to change how social skills programs are being run and make them, in Matt's terms, something that kids really, really want to go to. We've got the car park test at sessions that do the kids really want to get out of the car? And with the answer, yes, awesome. We did have one girl jump out of a moving car. So we had to have a conversation that, you know, we love that you are so excited, but we'd also like you to arrive in one piece, which she was receptive to, <laughs> thankfully. But, um, you know, I think in terms of the broader business landscape as well, it's so exciting to see more representation of, you know, women and neurodivergent people in leadership. I think based on my experiences as well and some of the other neurodivergent CEOs I've worked with, you know, we have a unique perspective at times and a lot to offer. Like Matt said, we, we run really efficient meetings. They never, ever run over time. So usually there's time to go and get a coffee at the end and have a bit of a break. But I think, you know, we're communities that have been historically underrepresented and it's just so exciting to see more of that coming through and more celebration of, you know, the unique strengths of us too. That's amazing. There's so much we can do, I think, in those school years and and really embed those foundations of that interaction and how people are working differently and those diversity key concepts early on. And hopefully that will translate through into our workplaces and vice versa. I think there's so much we can learn from looking in education. And that's certainly my experience in going and looking at how do we get kids more engaged in engineering, then that also translates to really really positive gender outcomes and more in the workplace. Matt, how about for you? What does the future hold for you? Yeah, so I I mean, we, we're in a very fortunate position. We've been wonderfully supported by the Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne. So I, I'm a senior lecturer here in learning interventions. So I, my other role here is to train teachers to better support 
to better support students in their in their school. So you can see a real crossover with next level here. That's why co-founders just has been so exciting. It's sort of changing the game, so to speak. But we're we're seeing what happens when a lot of the the young people we work with turn 18 and 19 and how they get into the workforce. So that's something else, Jess, and I are really excited about is the chance to to work with companies. And we've had we've had people reach out from a number of companies who heard our story saying, oh, hey, do you do anything with adults? And said, well, we actually, we employ adults. <laughs> but besides that, we, we are always interested in, in speaking with companies and, and just sharing what we've learned through this journey and always looking for, I guess, feedback from the autistic community. There might be people listening to this podcast who are autistic themselves, who have some great ideas about how we can have that impact and change the, the perception from deficit to differences around the world hopefully we, we really do have this um very ambitious vision to sort of work with partners and i was lucky to be able to go to the us and canada and to, to share some of the work we're doing here in australia that's world leading in this space and just to to work with and learn from the autistic community it's been brilliant so great so i'm hearing let's use gaming for good let's make neurodiversity our competitive advantage i'm stealing so many tips from both of you today and feel like we could keep talking about this and there's just even more just opening the floodgates here and you've got a book coming out as well so is there more in your book can i buy your book and learn more yes yeah, so i do have a book thank you very much for city the book is out now it's called Using Video Games to Level Up Collaboration. It's something that was a labor of love from my doctoral work, and it sort of was the starting research behind Next Level. So it's how we run these gaming groups within schools or other settings. It is focused on working typically with children and young adults, but we've had people who want to run these groups with all ages. So I actually have a book launch next Wednesday, the 22nd of March at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image at 4pm. If you're in town, swing on by if you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> if not, you can find my book online. Amazing. I'm definitely going to look that up. The Acme is an amazing place. I've taken my son there multiple times and he loves it. So great venue to have. And thank you both so much for your time. I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners have too. And can we find you on the socials if we have more questions later on? LinkedIn, Twitter, what's the best place to get in touch? Matt, I'll go with you first. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Hat Designs, H-A-T-T-D-E-S-I-G-N-S. And you can find Next Level Collaborations also on LinkedIn as well. Perfect. Amazing. And Jess, how about for you? Um, yeah, my Twitter is at Jess Rollings, which is spelled here, um, all one word. And yeah, we are on LinkedIn as well. So feel free to email us as well if you want to get in touch. Cool. Awesome. Well, I hope to see Matt at a cocktail party and Jess at an online gaming venue near me. And thank you so much for your time today. I've learned so much. It's been amazing. And thank you for having us. It was great, great to be part of it.